Yes, we did pull some all-nighters together, but uh, Fred actually did well in seminary, <laughs> unlike me. Um, but again, my name is Peter. Thank you for having me. I think it's the first time I worshipped in a space with so many mirrors. <laughs> I could see my, I was trying to make this worship service about Jesus, but I keep seeing myself, and I'm like, what the heck, you know? Um, but thanks again for having me. Yes, I am with my wife, Jessica. She is very understanding, if you know who I am. And uh, it was my four kids uh, that came and totally distracted your testimony. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Um, you know, I look around, many of you guys are um, Asian-American like me. Um, I hope, you know, if there's any affinity that we feel together, I hope it's not because, you know, we probably have a lot of mutual friends, because I'm sure if we look on Facebook, we have like tons of mutual friends, because the network is so small. And I feel like, you know, I feel, I, 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 I wish that what connects us together is the fact that all of us, if you call yourselves a Christian, right, that all of us are united because we consider ourselves saved, right? Because we have a common salvation in Jesus Christ, right? And what is salvation really? Salvation, you know, it's not just about a, a ticket to heaven, right? I think that definition often gets conflated when we think about this idea of being saved or when we think about this idea of salvation. 
It's not about just going to heaven. I think biblically speaking, that word salvation, that word to be saved, it's broader than that. It's deeper than that. It's the idea of being like healed, of being redeemed, of being rescued, right? Of being declared righteous, right? And I hope that what connects us together is we all believe that we have this healing, this rescue, this deliverance, this declaration of righteousness together in Jesus Christ. And I hope it's something that we constantly delight in. You know, Fred read the passage for us today. I'm sure it's a very familiar passage to many of us. I'm sure it's been preached many times here in this church as well. Um, I didn't pick it to impress you guys with it. I just happened to be in a series on the book of Ephesians at my own church. This is actually the dress rehearsal for my own service later on today. Um, but Paul, in our passage, talks a lot about what it means to be saved. Right? He talks a lot about salvation and the mechanics of it. Right? So that's what I want to talk about today. Right? This idea of salvation, this idea of being saved. And if you are a Christian, maybe today's passage, maybe today's message is a reminder of who you are at the core, right? It's a reminder of how your life is different as a result of Jesus intersecting in it. And if you're not a Christian, maybe this message, maybe this text, this passage serves as another data point on your journey towards what it means to put your faith in Jesus Christ, what it means to be a Christian, right? So, Today, let's explore this topic of salvation based on our text under three bullets, and three bullets because every sanctified sermon these days seems to have three bullets, right? So let's go with three bullets today. First is our need for salvation. Second, what salvation looks like. And finally, how we get salvation. So first, let's talk about our need for salvation. You know, if you ever, uh, like read, like, articles or um, things that have happened in the past about, like, mass conversions, right, mass conversions. Like, for example, in the book of Acts, it seems like every time an apostle opened his mouth and preached the gospel, like, masses of people started to get saved, started to give their life to Jesus Christ, right? Or you read about things like the Great Awakening that happened around the 17th century, 18th century. Or you read about, like, the Jesus movement of the 1970s. Right? It's like, some, like someone will share the gospel, someone will talk about Jesus, and like masses of people will come, and they'll give their lives to Christ, and they'll be saved, right? And, you know, like for me as a minister, I wondered like how that happened back in the day. Like how is it that these people would just like talk about Jesus, and masses of people would come to faith and give their lives to Jesus Christ? Like how did that happen, right? Because honestly, that kind of thing, at least in my experience, doesn't seem to happen that often anymore. Right? Like I, I talk to people who go to church or I talk to people who identify themselves as Christians. Right? And we talk about Jesus or we talk about church, you know, like the, the, the mood I get, the feeling I get is, you know, you know it's something we do on Sunday. You know, it's, it's, it's part of our routine. There's, there's like the non-Christian crowd and there's a Christian crowd. And I'm just part of the Christian crowd. It's just something that we do. Right? Or if you talk to like non-Christians, and you try to communicate things about the gospel. They'll give you this look of, oh, you know, that's pretty interesting. You're right? But nothing to the effect, and maybe to my shame as a minister of this stuff, as a, as a preacher of this stuff, maybe to my shame, it's never this like, wow, you've really shared with me something that's going to change my life forever. Like, that, that doesn't really happen that often these days. 
And it's as if we're like numb to this need for salvation, right? And so, you know, I started to, to think about it, you know, um, and the, the more I thought about this idea of being saved, of this idea of salvation, the more I realized that all of us are actually very salvation hungry. Right? All of us are actually very salvation hungry. All of us, we need and we crave salvation. And honestly, I think you and I, if we think about it for a minute, we know it. Deep in our hearts, we know we need salvation. Right? We said salvation. What does it mean to be, what does it mean to be saved? It, it means to be healed. It means to be rescued. It means to be declared okay, that you're righteous, that you're good. Right? And if you think about that definition, if we have this need for salvation, what does it assume about us? Right? It assumes that we need salvation. Like we need to be rescued. We need to be healed. There's something fundamentally wrong with us. Something about our existence is not the way it's supposed to be. Something about us isn't at peace by default. All of us, don't we always live in a, a state of tension? A state of where things are not always quite the way they should be? We're all so dependent on things outside of us to live. We're dependent on things outside of us to keep us and to sustain us, right? And again, if we reflect, I think deep in our hearts, we, we know this need. We know this need. It's not just a spiritual, emotional thing I'm talking about. It's like wired into our biology, isn't it, right? How do I know? Well, all of us, we need air to breathe. Hold your breath for like 30 seconds, Guarantee you, you will, find, you will feel that tension, that need for salvation. You need that air outside of you to keep you going, right? Or how about simple things like hunger, for example? Right? Hunger, I mean, you might be okay now because you had a big breakfast or you had your coffee earlier today, right? But give it about an hour, right? Or just after service, you're going to start to feel hungry again sometime. Or if you had Chinese food for breakfast, you know, you're going to feel hungry like in the middle of the sermon, Right? We all are dependent on things outside of us to satisfy us, to give us a sense of salvation, you know. And that I was reflecting on the hunger thing for a little bit, and, you know, it's, it's really a, a vicious cycle, isn't it? You know, my wife and I, um, well, not my wife so much, but me. Like, when we used to live in Queens, there was this uh, restaurant. It's a buffet restaurant because I, I just love buffets. Um, it's a Chinese restaurant that happens to have sushi. It's called Mizumi. And one day we were going to Mizumi. We try to get there on a weekday because it's a little cheaper on weekdays. And we go for lunch because it's cheaper during lunch, right? So we went there. I got there at 11.30. We're so hungry. We do this thing called intermittent fasting, right? We haven't eaten all day since like 8 p.m. the night before. And we're like starving and we're ready to like pig out at this buffet, right? So I'm so hungry. We finally get there and I'm picking out, oh, so good. I'm so hungry. This food is like giving me the salvation that I need. I'm being so satisfied, right? But as I eat, what happens? Another system in my body starts to kick in, the digestive system. And all of a sudden, all the food I ate needs to come out, right? So I feel salvation on the one hand, but on the other hand, there's another need for salvation that's brewing in my stomach. And until I take care of my business, I won't be satisfied. As soon as I take care of my business, what happens? Inevitably, because it's a Chinese buffet. An hour later, I need that salvation. It's like wired into our biology, isn't it? This idea that we need salvation. Like, when does it stop? 
Like Paul says in Romans 7, you know, who will deliver me from this body of death? Constantly needing salvation. It's in our biology. It's wired into our physiology. Right? But it doesn't stop there only, of course. Right? There is, of course, an emotional aspect to our need for salvation. Right? Like our need for love. Our need for acceptance. You know, I don't know how many of you guys have children, um, but you know, every baby, except for maybe baby Jesus, comes out crying. Right? Like you bop, 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 get all the water out of their lungs, and ah, they're, like, they're crying. Right? It happened to all four of our kids. But one of the like, crazy things about like, birth and pregnancy is that like, research has been finding out, not research that I've done, research I've read about, and it's kind of true. Like a crying baby, it's like crying when the nurse or the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the person who, whoever delivers your baby holds it. As soon as you give that baby skin-to-skin contact with the mother, right, it, it calms down. It's like the weirdest thing, right? Like, like this need for love, this need for acceptance, right? How many people do you know, or maybe even yourself, right, have such emotional struggles, Right, because someone in our past didn't give us the love or didn't love us the way we wanted or the way we expected. Right? How many people join things like violent gangs? Not because they're violent or they're evil in and of themselves, but they long to feel the sense of acceptance, the sense that I'm okay, the sense that I belong somewhere, Right? How many of us have experienced drama or unhealthy behavior or put our bodies through like such like gruesome things just so we can get the attention of a boy or a girl out there? Right? We're salvation hungry. Right? Right? It's physical, it's emotional, but we also have this need for things like transcendence, glory, and significance, right, don't we? And we know that glory and significance and transcendence, these things don't come to us naturally. These things aren't intrinsically a part of us. You know, something you might want to know about me is that I'm really into this sport called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I'm not very good at it. I just really like it, right? Um, and uh, the thing about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is, you know, you move up the ranks with belts like any other martial art. Now, I don't know if you have kids or you've seen kids. Like it's, it looks like if you, in a lot of these like Taekwondo studios, you pay enough tuition and like in a year and a half, your kid can be a black belt. Right? That's amazing. Like an uh, 80-year-old kid can be a black belt in Taekwondo. Like he's supposed to be able to take me. Come on. Right? Come on. Right? But in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, like the belts actually matter. Right? The second belt after white belt that you can get in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a blue belt. And over 95% of people who start jiu-jitsu never move beyond blue belt, right? The belts are meaningful, right? In order to progress in your belt, you have to prove that you can actually do jiu-jitsu, like you can actually defeat somebody. But anyways, right, I say this because there's this viral article in the jiu-jitsu community that came out, this purple belt. This guy's a purple belt. It's a third rank, right? So white belt, blue belt, purple belt. He's been a purple belt for 12 years, years, and he's an instructor. Purple belts can do can open academies and can teach, right? Because they're pretty good, right? He's been a purple belt for 12 years, and he decides, you know what? I'm sick of being a purple belt. I'm going to promote myself to brown belt. And the whole jiu-jitsu community is like laughing at this guy. How do you promote yourself to brown belt, right? Glory works the same way. Significance works the same way. 
You can't say, oh, I believe in my heart that I am glorious, that I am something. No way. No one respects that. Glory has to come from outside of you. Someone else outside of you has to tell you that you're glorious, that you're worthy, that you're worthwhile. We are all salvation. We have this need for glory. But it needs to come outside of us. We are all salvation hungry. And it's not just existential to us in our being, right? It's outside of us too, right? A few people have mentioned the, the shootings that happened in Las Vegas. Like, what's that about? Right? Or the hurricanes that devastated Houston and Puerto Rico, right? There's this need for salvation outside of us. Systems and governments that don't seem to work right. The wrong people rise to power. I'm not making a political statement at all. I'm just saying it seems like the wrong people rise to power. The people who try to do the right thing never get rewarded. I I see that so often. We have this need for salvation. It's inside of us and it's outside of us. We have this tremendous need for salvation. We know we do if we just sit and think about it. It's a huge Problem, right? and, and, and the problem that Paul points to, right, as we reflect on this need for salvation, right, is not that we need it. Right? He's not saying that your needs are illegitimate. No, he's saying your needs are fine. The problem is that we're not finding the remedy. We're not finding the solution. We're not finding our salvation in the right places. We're not finding the satisfaction for this tension that we have inside of us in the right places, right? Look at our text. What does Paul say about us? He says that we're dead in our transgressions. And what he means there is, left to our own devices, we look for salvation in all the wrong places, right? I want to say we, we follow the way of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Verse 3, we were gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Paul's saying we try to satisfy this need for salvation in our bodies, in our emotions, in in, in our hearts, this, this need for glory, significance. Even things outside, assistance outside of us. We try to find the salvation for these things in the only way we know. And the only way we know by default is to look out into the world and see what's been done. To follow its patterns, right? We follow what the world prescribes, what it means to love and be loved. We follow the world's patterns about what it means to achieve glory, what it means to make a name for yourself. You know, it's like my old pastor used to say, right? We're filling legitimate needs illegitimately, right? We're trying to fulfill legitimate needs that we have illegitimately, right? Because by nature, the last place that we'll look for salvation in is in the person of Jesus Christ. Is it not? The last place we often look. When push comes to shove, when things get hard and difficult, the last place we often look to for salvation is Jesus Christ. So that brings us to our second point, what salvation looks like. What salvation looks like. Now, Paul, if you've read the book of Ephesians or if you've read from chapter 1 till where we are now in chapter 2, you'll see that what Paul wants to suggest 
is that salvation is ultimately had in the person of Jesus Christ. Salvation can only be had in the person of Jesus Christ. And I understand, look, of course, right, we're in church, and I'm a preacher. Of course you expect me to say something like that, right? That salvation can only be had in Jesus Christ. Salvation is only available in Jesus Christ. And all of us, if you identify as a Christian, you know that that is a quote-unquote right answer. Right? That salvation can only be had in Jesus Christ. But to get us to like, really know that, to get us to really believe that, to get us to like, feel that deep in our hearts, right? that's like trying to convince my kids to eat healthy. Right? I mean, you, you ask my kids, they're in Sunday school right now, but if they come back and you ever ask them, like, what do you want to eat right now? What's the answer always? Always candy. Always jujuba. No matter what. Jujuba is a frozen treat with a little lactic acid flavoring, right? That's what they want to eat. Candy and jujuba. Right? That's a subject. You know, my wife, she cooks like these fantastic, like vegetables and healthy food. Right? You, put, you, you're like, you, you get, hey, do you want to try some of it? No. No. Right? even though they might know because we tell them that this is the stuff that's good for you. This is the stuff that's going to make your brain work and your body work well. We tell them these things and they might believe it in their minds. When push comes to shove, man, what do they really want to eat? Candy and chuchuba, right? Candy and chuchuba, right? Or it's like, you know, talking to a single person about getting married, right? Especially in places like New York City, I find, you know, a lot of people delay wanting to get married, why? Because you know, they want to live their lives while they're single. They don't want to live it up. I, you know, we treat Jesus like David Cook. You know, when you find you, come back to me. You know? Yeah, give me time to find myself. You know? I, I, I want to sow my wild oats, whatever it is. I, I want to find who I am. I want to live my life. And you know, when I'm ready to settle what? Down. When I'm ready to settle down, that's when I'll get married. Right? We think about marriage like this. You know, I'll, I'll say just personally, that marriage has been one of the, the greatest things that's happened to me in my life. Right? I, I'll, I'm just saying this to flatter my wife. Actually, I am. Right? No, I'm not. No, seriously. I, I, it's been the greatest, and it's been the worst, too. Right? But overall, it, it, is, it is a magnificent thing of God's grace, the fact that I'm married. It's such a mirror to yourself. I don't want to make it about me, it, but it's such a mirror to yourself. I, God really uses it to bring out a lot of junk. You, you, you think you're good? Man, get married, and you'll find out you are not. Right? It is the greatest mirror to your life. But anyway, like, you know, it's good for us, and it's bad for us. Like, it's good for us. It hurts so good, right? But, like, when you're single, you don't think this way. You think about what's immediately satisfying. You're like my kids, right? Or I was like my kid, right? Candy and chuchuba, that's what we want, right? We need salvation, and Jesus is often the last place we look for it, right? But let's consider what Paul tells us in verse 4, right? He says, because of his great love for us, because of God's great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, right? He says that true salvation is to be made alive. Right? And if you want to be alive, you need to be alive in Christ. You need to be united to him by faith. Right? And if you think about what Paul is saying, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Right? You read from the beginning of the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's not a statement about 
like creation versus evolution, right? I don't think, you know, if, you, if you're hung up on like Genesis 1 being about the mechanics of how God created, I think you're kind of missing the point, right? Genesis 1 is there to tell us that however the world was created, that there was intent, that God had planned this from a long time ago. And Genesis 1 is an execution of this plan, right? And at the pinnacle of creation, the Bible tells us that he created man and woman in his image, right? And some of the Psalms go on to reveal that he knew us and he formed us in our mother's wombs, right? That the days of our lives were written for us, right? right? And Jesus, right? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Bible tells us that he is the exact imprint of God's nature. And he came down to the earth and took the form of human flesh. And he says, right, as he's ministering to his people, he says about himself, that I am the salvation that you've been looking for. I am the salvation that you've been looking for, right? In John chapter 6, Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 people. Actually, it's probably about 15,000 people, including women and children, right? And it's as if to demonstrate the very words that he preached in Matthew chapter 6, right? He says, you know, don't worry about food. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Your Father in heaven knows that you need these things. Just trust him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, I don't worry about things like that. Your father will take care of you, right? As if it's a, a physical demonstration of this reality that Jesus is our sustainer and our provider, right? That he will give us all things necessary for physical life, right? Or how about when the Bible says that God is love? God is love. That is a crazy statement, that God is love. And what does Jesus say about that? He says, you remain in me, my words remain in you, then you remain in my love. You remain in my love. And, and love in the Bible, it's not just this like, you know, crazy feeling, this crazy emotion, this, this bubbly thing that we feel in our guts. Our love is deeper than that, biblically speaking. It's much deeper than that. Like Paul will tell, you, tell us later in chapter 3 in the book of Ephesians that the love God expresses for us is a love that's beyond knowledge. Beyond knowledge. I had a glimpse of what beyond what I know love feels like when I had my first child. This is a part of my heart. Like I, I knew my capacity for love before I had my first kid. I'm sorry, it's even like my capacity for love didn't change after I got married either. Like I just knew that I had a limit to how much I can love. But as soon as I had my first kid, man, that's like part of my heart that I didn't know existed just opened up, right? And then it, what God is saying, right? What Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 3 is that love, you might think you know love, but the love of God in Christ Jesus, it's beyond what you know, right? And just like it took an event like the birth of my child for me to figure out that I had like this, I went from here to like here, right? He's saying it's going to blow you away. A love God has, accepting us and loving us for who we are, not for what we can produce for him. A love that lasts forever, right? This is a love that we have in Jesus Christ, right? What about our need for glory? What about our need for significance, our need for transcendence? Well, it tells us in Philippians chapter 2 
that Jesus, while he was here on the earth, he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because Jesus emptied himself, because he made himself nothing, because he died on the cross, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And the promise, the promise, brothers and sisters, is that if we're united to Jesus Christ by faith, this peace, this rest, this love, this glory and transcendence, this salvation can be ours. This salvation can be ours. And it's only available in Jesus Christ. Right? Consider Psalm 103. This is a guy who's meditating on the goodness of God. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He who forgives your iniquity, he who heals you from your diseases, he redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with all that is good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Right? So we have our need for salvation, what salvation looks like. And finally, and very quickly, let's think about how we get salvation. Right? We have this tremendous need for salvation. And salvation, true salvation... Salvation that counts is only available to us through Jesus Christ. How do we get now this salvation? It says in verse 8 and 9, it says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's a very familiar verse to many of us, a very familiar passage to many of us. Many of you might have it even memorized. And what is it? It says, By grace that we have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. And even grace, this idea of grace and salvation coming to us by grace, it makes sense, doesn't it? Right? If you have a problem that you can solve on your own, maybe the problem that you had isn't a problem on the level of death, like the way Paul describes our need for salvation. Maybe it wasn't at that level, right? Because any legitimate salvation needs to come from outside of us. Any legitimate salvation needs to come from outside of us. We can try, but honestly, we can't. We can't. We don't have, we're not like God. We're not God in the sense that we don't have like being and existence and glory in and of ourselves. We are dependent creatures. These things need to come into us from outside of us. You know, I I have a very tangible experience with this. Um, I told you guys I'm into jujitsu. Well, um, jujitsu's sister art is uh, another art called judo, right? And uh, back in college a long time ago, I was really into judo. Um, In in fact, just like seminary, um, in college, I didn't really study that much. (laughs) Um, My passions were judo and Jesus. Like, those are my two things. Like, I used to skip class to listen to R.C. Sproul's Renewing Your Mind on the radio. And then Tuesdays and Thursdays, I go down to the gym to, to play judo. Well, anyways, my freshman year, I'm a white belt. I'm a beginner in judo, and I enter my first competition in judo, right? And I'm so into judo, I'm, I'm determined to be first place in this competition. And so I got to the finals, 
Right? This was the match. This is where I'm going to prove to the world that I am the greatest white belt alive in my college. Right? So I'm there, I'm competing, and the guy who's competing against me happens to be like a teammate. He goes to the same school, we're part of the same club, and he's Korean too. Right? So there are two things at stake. Not only did I want to be the greatest judo player in, white belt judo player in my school, I wanted to be the greatest judo player among the Korean, small Korean community that we had. Right? This is a bragging rights. I was not going to lose this match. Right? And here's how you win in judo. Right? You... If you ever watch Olympic judo, it's very exciting. Uh, you can either win by uh, like jujitsu style. You can choke the guy out. You can pin him. You know, you could submit him. Like you, you know, put him in an arm bar, and you know, oh, it hurts too much. You could tap out. That's one way you can win in judo. But the most popular way to win in judo is while you're standing up, you try to throw the guy with so much momentum that he's he's kind of in the air and he lands cleanly flat on his back. That's called ipon, and that match is over. Right? That's how you win a judo match. And I'll tell you, my teammate was probably more athletic and better than me, right? And he psyched me out. He, I thought he was going to throw me to the right, but he ended up faking and throwing me to the left, and he had me. He had the momentum, and if I just let him go, I was going to land flat on my back, and I was going to lose this match. I said, no way, that's not going to happen. So while midair, I'm like aware of this. I'm like, okay, I'm going to catch myself. So I, like, I'm, I'm, like, I'm like flying midair, and I put my arm out to stop myself from getting thrown on my back. Guess what? I was fat back then because, you know, all-you-can-eat college dormitory food. Man, freshman 30, I gained it, right? I was, I, my body had so much momentum, there was no way my arm was going to hold my body. So I held my arm out to try to stop the throw from happening, and then I hear all of a sudden, while the throw is being executed, I hear, Hush. Now, something you have to understand is when we play judo, we play on canvas mats. It's made out of canvas. And, like, at first, I didn't feel anything. So I'm like, oh, man, he threw me so hard that the canvas ripped. This is amazing. I thought the canvas that we were standing on ripped. But then I look at my arm. It's totally dislocated. And suddenly it comes here. Oh, my goodness. I just dislocated my arm. And it's so painful. You don't understand how painful that is. Like my elbow's out of joint. My ligaments are being stretched. I see like part of my, it's like best of the best, you know, that movie. It's like I see part of my bone sticking out of my, of my forearm. It's so disgusting. You know, at that moment, you have to be kidding me if you think I can put my arm back into place. Just touching my arm, oh, it's like a baby crying. It hurts so much, right? And even if I could, like, you know, with Shaolin discipline, like, stop the pain, and I, I didn't have the, I don't have the leverage to be able to pop it back in. There's no way at that moment I'm going to save myself. Someone had to come outside of me. Pop my arm back in. Puppet, doctor, puppet, right? Oh, you guys didn't watch Best of the Best. You guys totally don't get that reference. It's a great movie. Netflix it, right? right? Someone outside of me had to save me, right? Brothers and sisters, we're all salvation-hungry people. We're all dead in our transgressions. We're dressed in grave clothes, that stink of death. And Paul says we're trying our hardest to save ourselves. We're trying to fulfill legitimate needs that we have illegitimately. And here's Jesus who comes and says, I am true life. I am true peace. I am the salvation that you've been waiting for. My plea, my ask today is, Will you give your life to him? Will you give your life to him? Jesus says, you try to save your life, you try to save your own life, guess what? You're going to lose it. 
but lose yourself for me. Lose yourself for the gospel, and there you'll find it. Let's pray together.